In Genesis 15, Abram suggests that Eleazar of Damascus, one of his servants, would be the heir of his household. He says, uh, he's speaking with God, he's conversing with God, and he says, uh, God, you're not giving me children, so I've appointed Eleazar as my heir. He says, uh, indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Like it's this great idea that he's suggesting to the Lord. And the Lord says, no, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And what are we told? We are told that Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. We, all, we call this justification. He was justified before God because of his faith in the promises but at that time, Abram was discouraged, right? He was lacking trust, and he comes up with this own plan to fulfill God's promises to him, to justify himself apart from the promises of God. God denies him this alternative, but then also comforts him and reassures him of his own faithfulness to Abram. And now in our passage, uh, passage today... We have Sarai, who is similarly impatient, discouraged, and lacking trust. And she comes up with a similar way to make God's promises happen, to justify herself. But who can blame her? Both her and Abram are getting older. They are attempting to have children, but God is withholding children. Perhaps we misunderstood God, she thinks to herself. Perhaps we aren't doing something right. Perhaps I need to do something to put God's promises into motion. So Sarai hatches the Hagar plan, very similar to Abram's Eleazar plan. Let's have an heir through my maiden, Hagar. And this was a common practice in the ancient Near East. If you were sterile, you would have your handmaiden as kind of the surrogate mother to perpetuate the line. So what Sarah's doing is she's mimicking the world in order to attain her salvation, essentially, to justify herself, to make the promises of God happen. But our God doesn't do things like the world. Our God is greater than the world. His ways are not our ways. And so the purpose of the Christian life of trusting in God is, is putting our trust in these ways that are kind of beyond worldly ways of doing things. And what does God say to Abram before? We have a clue here of, of uh, this going to be a bad idea from the beginning. Um, in chapter 15, the previous chapter, what does he say in verse 4? He says, one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And we read this and we make the same mistake that Sarai does. We think, okay, Abram's body means only Abram. But that's not what Abram's body is. Abram's body is Abram and Sarai, the total Abram. To uh, put a twist on, on Augustine's phrase, uh, the total Christ, when he means Christ as the head and the church as the body, we have the total Abram here. Sarai is Abram's wife. And what does the Bible say about a man's wife? In Genesis 2.23, Adam, he sings this poetry about his wife. It's covenantal language repeated over and over in this melody throughout the scriptures of covenantal binding and almost this oath language. Adam sings this to Eve. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then what does Moses write immediately after in Genesis? He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
So they're one body. And then Jesus comments on this in Matthew 19, 6. We have Jesus' divine commentary on this passage in Genesis 2. Jesus says, so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They are one body. And then what does Paul tell the Christians in Ephesus? He says, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. A man is one body with his wife, just as we are one body with Christ. So when God says to Abram that his heir would come from his body, from his own body, God means Abram and Sarai, because they are one flesh and one body. This is Abram's body. In verse 2, Sarai says to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please, go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. That I shall obtain children by her is more literally uh, that I may build from her. That word there, obtain, is really build. It's to build. Um, and this suggests to me, um, and I think, I think that this is warranted, that Sarai is endeavoring to build another Babel right? We just had this. It's another false city, another city apart from the promises of God, building in your own strength, building apart from the commandments of God, building apart from the promises of God. And after the failed endeavor of Babel in Genesis 11, what does God do? God comes to Abram in Genesis 12 and he says what? He says, I will make you a great nation. I will make your name great. Because what were the people in Babel doing? They were trying to make themselves a great nation. They were trying to make their own name great. But that's not how God's doing things. He comes to Abram and he says, I'm going to do this for you. You're not going to do this for me. A great picture of kind of monergistic action on, on God's part. That grace is unilaterally bestowed uh, on to his people. And the building that we see Abram doing following that is what? What is it? It's sacrificial in the sense that he's just building altars. He's building altars to God. He's building altars to Yahweh because Yahweh is the one who is going to build him a city. He is the one who is going to erect a nation on his own terms. But here we see Sarai wanting to build on her own terms. Go into my maiden Hagar that I may build from her. She wants to build her own city. That's not how the city of God works, though. And what does Abram do in verse 2? Abram heeded the voice of Sarai, we're told. And what is this? This is just simply a recapitulation of Adam. Abram is acting like his father, Adam, instead of his father, Yahweh. Like Adam, his wife has succumbed to the serpent of deception, doubt and distrust, and like Adam, he capitulates into passivity. He goes along with the plan. He takes the forbidden fruit. He heeds the voice of his wife rather than the voice of Yahweh. And so we enter into another kind of fall. It's another sin, another act of unfaithfulness. In verse 3, it says, then Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. <laughs> 
which is amazing to me when I'm reading this. Moses is just going out of his way constantly to remind us of who Sarai is and who Abram is. In verse 1, he says, now Sarai, Abram's wife. In verse 3, then Sarai, in case you forgot, Abram's wife, gave Hagar to who? Her husband. It's repeated so much that it's almost comical. It's just emphatically showing us this is his wife. And what is she doing? And what is he doing? So like Eve, she offers this forbidden fruit to Abram. And like Adam, Abram accepts it. He takes a bite out of it. And what does that do? It gives birth to Ishmael. Gives birth to a fallen human race like Adam. And then notice what happens. There's this leitmotif of seeing things differently of eyes and sight. This whole chapter has all of these references to seeing and and eyes. In Genesis 2, we're told of Eve, she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And in our passage, Sarai becomes despised in the eyes of Hagar. Her mistress became despised in her eyes, we're told in verse 4. In verse 5, it says, When she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. And in verses 14 and through uh, through 15, Hagar names God. You are the God who sees is the name that she gives to the angel of the Lord. For she said, have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahai Roy, which means the well of the one who lives and sees me. Eyes are instruments of judgment. When God creates, he looks and he says, this is good. This is good. Man alone, that's not good. Eyes are instruments of judgment. We make judgments. We evaluate. We observe, as does the Lord. We see reality through them. And the sin of Abram here, it showed his inability to see, his inability to judge rightly. Same thing with Sarai. And then it turns the way they're seeing everything. It turns the way Hagar saw her mistress. It turned the way Sarai saw Hagar. And what does Sarai say? Sarai says, my wrong be upon you. (laughs) She says this to, to Abram. So she's acknowledging that there was sin there. So their eyes are open to their sin like Adam and Eve. But what does she do? Like Adam blaming her, her, his, his wife, She sees her sin and she blames it on her husband. My wrong be upon you. (laughs) So their eyes are open to their sin. They're able there. So there's some kind of reality coming in there. Their their, their sinfulness is acknowledged. So there's partial uh, openness of the eyes. They see their nakedness, as it were. They see that it was wrong. But who's the one who actually sees clearly the most here? It's the Lord, the God who sees, the God who sees me, the God who sees all. He sees all things rightly with a view to eternity past and eternity future, with perfect judgment and sovereign orchestration. He sees the fallenness of our humanity, and then he bestows salvific grace in the midst of our fallenness. The sin of Abram and Sarai uh, resulted in the harsh treatment of those under their care. 
and banishment into the wilderness of Hagar. And yet the angel of Yahweh, he comes to Hagar, this poorly treated and exiled slave, this woman at a well. And interestingly enough, this is the first time that we see the angel of the Lord. It's the first time the angel of the Lord is mentioned in the Bible. And this angel of the Lord is possibly a Christophany. Uh, this angel of Yahweh, a, a pre-incarnate Christ, possibly. And what does he do? This pre-incarnate Christ, he approaches this broken woman at a well. And he offers her salvation. He offers her some kind of redemption here. Adam and Eve flee from the presence of God after their sin. And Hagar flees from the presence of her mistress after their sin. And God seeks out Adam and Eve, uh, and he asks them these probing questions, and he declares judgment. But he also offers the first gospel, if you remember, the proto-evangelion, promises of redemption. Uh, to the serpent, God declares, do you remember what the proto-evangelion is? The first gospel, the first gospel that God declares. Yes, yes. Exactly. Right. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. So there's going to be a war. But then he calls the end from the beginning, right? He says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is God speaking to the serpent. This is God proclaiming the first gospel, the proto-evangelion. Likewise, God seeks out Hagar. He asks these probing questions and he offers her blessings out of the mess that she finds herself in. And God provides redemption for those under uh, the covenant headship of Adam and Eve. Um, and he also provides redemption for Hagar, who are under the household, uh, who is under the household covenant uh, headship of Abram and Sarai. What does he say? He says, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. So there's a kind of redemption here, even in the midst of this fallenness, right? And he says, uh, he says, call uh, her son. He says, name your son Ishmael, which means God hears because God heard her affliction. God heard her affliction. This woman at the well, he hears her affliction and he comes to her. He offers her this redemption and it shows the heart of God, that his heart is toward those who are afflicted, that his ears are not deaf to those in distress. And yet there is judgment. There is a curse. God says, he shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. And this is what we see throughout Genesis. Ishmael and his descendants, uh, not even throughout Genesis, but the rest of scripture and into the present time, the descendants of Ishmael and Ishmael himself are against the heirs of Abram. So much so that he eventually does get kicked out of Abram's household again. But this does not nullify the grace of God. There is still salvation to be attained. They are not lost entirely. They are still called back to God. What does God tell Hagar? He tells Hagar, return to your mistress and submit herself under, submit yourself under her hand. And later on, it appears um, through Ishmael's scoffing and laughter of Isaac that she had not fully submitted herself to her mistress. If she transmits this kind of scoffing attitude to her son, it appears to me 
that submission never fully occurred. So he is at odds with the true heir of the descendant of Abram, who is Isaac. And this scoffing and laughter has perpetuated to the present, as most Arabs trace their lineage back to Ishmael, and they claim the inheritance through the prophet, the false prophet, Muhammad. The inheritance is not theirs. It is not theirs. In the book, uh, Son of Hamas, Masab Hassan Youssef mocks American diplomats for thinking they're going to bring peace to the Middle East. Um, to, bring, to bring peace to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He basically says, these guys are out of their depth. Um, they don't really know what they're doing. And he said, I quote, the current conflict stretches all the way back to the animosity between Sarah and Hagar described in the first book of the Bible. Yusuf is a Muslim turned Christian who tells us that the conflict can only be resolved when both Muslims and Jews repent of their hatred toward each other, toward their enemies, and submit themselves to Jesus the Christ. It was the words of Jesus to love our enemies that changed Yusuf's heart. And he says that's the only thing that's going to fix this problem. That's true. So this was a son of Hagar. Yusef is a son of Hagar, a descendant of Ishmael, returning to his mother's mistress, Sarai. Because Sarai represents the covenant of promise in Christ Jesus, the true heir. Am I just making that up out of whole cloth? No. Paul tells us this. The imperative God says to Hagar still stands for her descendants. Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her hand. And furthermore, it paradoxically applies to Jews. According to the flesh, modern-day Jews, they too must return to their mistress and submit themselves under her hand. So this is, this is where Paul starts talking about this. And the, uh, Paul is talking to first-century Jews and Judaizers who either rejected Christ or wanted to use the law as the primary instrument of justification before God. In other words, the Judaizers are saying to people, you got to be Jewish, you got to be a Jew in order to come into the covenant of God. And Paul is like, no, this is not what's going on. In Galatians, Paul, uh, he calls the Jews and Judaizers Ishmaelites. He basically makes this paradoxical switch on them by calling Jews sons of Ishmael and calling Christians sons of Isaac. He's saying, you Jews are Ishmaelites and you Christians are true Jews. He's digging at these people in their most sensitive spot because their whole identity is wrapped up in this and they've, they've misapplied it. He says this in Galatians 4, tell me you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. Whoa, whoa, Paul, symbolic. Let's not get too crazy here with all this typology stuff. For these are two covenants, two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is. What is Paul saying? He's saying Jerusalem is now Mount Sinai in Arabia. 
and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. He's talking about the church there. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who do not labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. Who is that? That's Christians. We, we, we Christians, as Isaac was, we are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. Ishmael persecutes Isaac. Even so, it is now. But what is he doing? He's saying the Judaizers are now the Ishmaelites and the Christians are, are Isaac. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Now we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here. He's referring to an incident which happens later. But the, the main thing that's going on here is Paul is emphatically decrying a return to the Jewish distinctives of the law. The law, whether it's mosaic or moral from a natural law, it justifies no man. The moral law justifies no man. Only trust in the Lord, specifically trust uh, in the Messiah who came as the telos, the end, the fulfillment of the law, justifies a man. We are brought into the covenant of Yahweh as children of Abram through faith and trust in the promises of God. And this has direct application to our Jewish brothers who are, they are the firstborn, right? They, they are like Ishmael. Ishmael was the firstborn. The Jews, Jew, salvation is to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. All throughout scripture, the, first, the firstborn, the first king, the older brother is always the Jews. It always represents the Jews. And Ishmael represents the Jews. Paul tells us Ishmael is you and we are Isaac. So they're our older brother. And like Ishmael, they have forsaken their inheritance. Why? Because they have not submitted themselves to their mistress's hand. They have not submitted themselves to Sarai, who typifies what? What does Paul tell us? The church, the Jerusalem from above, which is the mother of us all. The Jews at the time, they persecuted Christians. They were bringing the sticks to the fires to burn Christians. They were the most zealous to kill us. Just as Ishmael persecuted Isaac, Paul tells us. So we can say with the angel of the Lord to the Jews and to the Muslims, both return to your mistress and submit yourself to her hand. That mistress is the church, the Jerusalem from above. She submits herself to her husband, who is Jesus, the Christ, the son of the living God. This also has direct application to the unbeliever. So coming out of the Abrahamic heirs, this has direct application to the unbeliever who uh, in our time is seeking to justify themselves. Everyone is seeking to justify themselves somehow. And we are seeking to justify ourselves with our own laws. Uh, so you denounce racism and sexism loud enough and you will be justified. Uh, care about climate change enough and you will be justified. Import the third world and you will be justified. Ban all the guns and you will be justified. 
hate God, live as a homosexual, a fornicator, a blasphemer, an idolater. But as long as you really care about closing the wage gap between men and women, you will be justified. And finally, this has direct application to us as Christians, because we do not want to become haughty like the Jews and think we are inheritors of the promise simply because we're Reformed or Roman Catholic or Lutheran. These things can be works of the flesh. They can be birthing an Ishmael, external identity markers that can be substituted for true birth in the Spirit of God. And being born of the Spirit of God means trusting in the promises of God even when you are barren. It means trusting in the promises of God, even when others are fruitful, like the slave woman Hagar. Even when we see the fruits of megachurches or popular ministries, if they have not submitted themselves fully to the Jerusalem from above, they have birthed Ishmael's. They are Hagar. They are Sarah trying to bring about her own salvation. They've worked things out in their own flesh. And in God's providential mystery, he still blesses these Ishmaelites for whatever reason, because God is more graceful than we are. But we are children of promise. And so we cling to the promises, to the full counsel of God in all his decrees and promises. And we rejoice because that's what Paul tells us to do. Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. And we wait on the Lord. We wait on him in faith because those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This waiting on the Lord is done by the spirit of the Lord, which gives us patience. And so we, we, we affirm that God works all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. And we don't understand how God works all these things out for our good all the time. But he does, and we can cling to that. We can trust in that. He does it in his own ways and in his own timing. We simply trust and obey in our little part of the kingdom. And God orchestrates the, the rest. So just as Abram was justified by his trust in God's promises, our passage here shows us what happens when you try to make God's promises occur in your own ways and in your own timing. So continue believing in God, waiting on God, obeying God, faith, hope, and love. We continue in these things until God calls us home. The charge is this. Don't birth an Ishmael. Don't seek to justify yourself. Don't seek to make the promises of God happen apart from the sovereign orchestration of God. If God has placed you in a seemingly impossible situation, consider the consequences of Abram's disobedience. Consider what happened when he acted like his father, Adam. God has promised us salvation through his son, Jesus the Christ. And so trust in him. Believe his words, however hard they may be. Love your enemy. Love your neighbor. Love your God. Trust him. Wait for him. Obey him. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And amen.